This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. It's essential that we have these kind of short-term, simple things that we can do to get started. But I do think it's also good to find ways of seeing more developed, rooted Christian community um, because it's going to give you an imagination for where you can go. With rampant polarization and a sense that we can't actually get out from the divides that we see all across the political spectrum and across our own families, what might we do? Well, in this conversation, I chat with Jake Meter. He's the author of What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World. And if you're looking for a few practical as well as theological and theoretical places to get started, listen in to this really helpful conversation. Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy Podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. In this season of the Finding Holy podcast, we are exploring themes about going back in order to move forward. So whether we're looking backwards in time, in history, through theology, or even in our own stories, we're going to be talking about what does it look like to embrace our past so we can embrace our future. Stay with us. Friends, I am joined by a mutual friend, Jake Meter. He is the editor-in-chief at Mere Orthodoxy, and he has written another lovely book called What Are Christians For? And we're going to chat about cultural decline, the family, and where we might see a bit of hope. So thanks, Jake, for being here with us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So tell us um, what precipitated this book particularly. What was nagging at you to... You know, as it comes off of your your previous book, In Search of the Common Good, what does it look like then to to kind of move on from that project into this this book? Uh, so I actually was just talking to a friend recently who said the first book was like the Benedict Option for Reformed Evangelicals, <laughs> and this I love it. this second book is Catholic Social Doctrine for Reformed Evangelicals. Yeah, yeah. And so that that really was where it started because I have been reading um, encyclicals and. Um, apostolic letters or exhortations, I think is the term, um, from various pontiffs for, man, 13 years now. Um, I had a friend, well, um, Anthony Bradley, who was at Covenant Seminary at the time, gave me a reading list um, when I was in college and was considering going to Covenant. And he gave me a bunch of encyclicals to read. And I've been reading them ever since. Mm. Um, And I love the way that Christian thought just pervades the entire 
um, approach that the Roman church has taken to a lot of questions, everything from climate change to life issues to immigration. Um, you can find encyclicals on all of these things. And they're these relatively short, relatively easy to read documents. And Protestants just don't have anything like yeah. that. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I mean, when we think about, you know, Protestants saying, okay, the priesthood of all believers actually matters, you know, and that you, you <laughs> right. we, we have less of a hierarchical structures. And so in some ways you would think like, just theologically, Protestants should be better at social doctrine and living out their faith. We're bad at institutions. Um, we lost the main line in the early 20th century, which was a disaster in all kinds of ways. And evangelicals, which is where like my tribe of of Christians ended up because we lost our institutions. We ended up with yeah. evangelicals and that's mostly very anti-institutional, anti-intellectual Baptist Methodist types back in the early 1900s anyway. Right. And so there were just no institutions or kind of intellectual ecosystems to cultivate that mm -hmm. stuff. So we're, I mean, even today, like with Rome, like if you read um, a popular level Catholic intellectual if you know the Catholic academic world, you can often kind of trace, like, I know he's reading this and he's friends with this person. And so he did this. And we don't have those kind of ecosystems for the most part. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is a function of institutions. So when a Pope dies, like John Paul II writes a wonderful encyclical on life issues called Evangelium Vitae. Um, mm -hmm. Benedict XVI comes along and picks up the work in many ways, excels it. Um, and then like Benedict was known as the green Pope. Many people forget this now, but he was actually, he has extensive writings on climate change and environmental care. Mm -hmm. um, well, Pope Francis comes along and Laudato Si grows out of that. Um, we don't have that kind of succession. So Kuiper and Bovink are actually trying to figure this out at the right. same time yeah, yeah, yeah. that Rome is starting to work on it. And then Kuiper and Bovink die and there's just no successors. There's no one to carry on the work. Um, and so I wanted to try and write something that was picking up, like retrieving mm -hmm. um, the Dutch Calvinists and trying to bring the stone lectures by Kuiper, some of Bobbing's work into contemporary discourse. There was another Dutchman named Groen van Prinsterer who I came across while reading, who's a predecessor of Kuiper's, um, who I think in many ways he's working with the same categories as Kuiper in a way that Bovink isn't. Bovink's kind of doing something different. Um, but Grun is working in the same kind of mental categories as Kuiper, but I think he's better. Um, mostly not known today, though. And so I was reading those guys alongside these Catholic encyclicals and trying to write a book that addressed various social questions mm -hmm. um, in a reformed key that is accessible and engaging for the kind of IVP readers. Right. Right. No, I, I you know, the, the amount of retrieval um, that you do and yet making it accessible is, is a hallmark, I feel like of Jake meters writing. So well done, but you know, as we think through, you know, you particularly talk about are, you know, as Americans and modern people more generally, you know, are divorced from place, from the land. Um, you talk about the kind of fragmentation of the family, of our bodies, of, of race. What is something, you know, as you were kind of talking about the ways in which we have become 
isolated from ourselves, from our places, that whiteness has become something um, kind of to aspire to, um, and yet has actually, of course, been the reason for oppression. Yeah. Yeah. What surprised you in, in pulling on some of these threads of our social condition? Yeah. So when I was doing the reading early on and drafting the book, I did not have anything dealing with race in the initial draft mm-hmm. of the book. And then I kind of realized that's a huge lapse on my part to like not address that at all in a book with this kind of stated goal. Um, it also became more clear, like Kuiper in particular has some pretty odious things in his record on race issues. Um, and he has descendants who were actual Nazis. Um, Bavink actually is very different in this respect. Bavink, um, one of the first things he noticed about America when he visited here <clears throat> were the racial issues. Um, mm-hmm. He was pretty unflinching in his condemnation of it, um, had major concerns about what colonialism would mean for the faith. Um, and his children yep. acquitted themselves marvelously, or his child and his grandchildren <laughs> during um, World War II. And so I started thinking about how race would fit into this. And I read a, um, actually, I think I watched it first and then I read it, um, a lecture by Willie Jennings called Can White Mm -hmm. People Be Saved, which is a jarring title. Um, (laughs) But the first thing you have to do when you ask that question is ask, well, what do you mean by white? Mm -hmm. And I think most people intuitively know that it's a weird category that doesn't altogether work. Because like even in my own family, my great grandfather emigrated here from Greece. Most of my family on my mom's side is Swedish. Um, but then my great grandpa and my grandmother are Greek. And so this created some tensions within the family. Um, Swedes kind of assimilated into the U.S. and into the Midwest out here where I am very quickly. And my great grandfather like he was in Boston for a long time and then he moved out here, but there were some tensions there that I think reflect Mm. some of these questions. Like are Greek people white Are Italians Mm. white. This was Mm -hmm. another question. Are Irish, are the Irish white? Right. Um, So I think everybody knows there's some ambiguity with that label and it doesn't really work to say that it refers to purely to like a skin tone because there's too much ambiguity. Um, It's referring to something else. And what Jennings argued in this essay is that it's really referring to a certain idea of what it means to be a mature, well-formed person, um, to be a complete individual. And so he uses the colonialists that came to the new world in the 16th century. I mean, even the phrase new world is a bit of a tell here. Um, (laughs) And what they should have seen, what, we would expect them to see really is complex cultures, landscapes, people, religions, languages, um, reflections of what it is to be human in God's world. Um, And yet when you read their writings, that doesn't seem to be what they see. They see wealth to be exploited. They see people to be conquered. They see land to be subdued. And you can even see that reflected in how they related to the land. You know, I live in Nebraska. It should be prairie. It's not prairie. And it's not prairie because a bunch of white people came in, took all the Indians off the land, killed all the buffalo, and plowed up all the prairie. Um, So Jennings said what whiteness is at its core is this way of 
placing yourself at the center and reducing everything around you to stuff um, that you can that you can use as you desire for your own purposes. And what was really interesting about that was I read that and I had just been reading Grun and Grun says that the revolution, which is the thing he's critiquing, Mm -hmm. is this rejection of the natural order and the reduction of everything basically to power. And the world is whatever people who have power say it is. This is the thing that Grun sees Mm -hmm. animating the French revolution, for example. Um, And so I read that by Jennings and I'm like, that's strikingly similar to Grun. (laughs) Right. And then as I thought about it more, I thought it's also strikingly similar to the way that Justice Kennedy, for instance, defended abortion rights in the Casey ruling, where Justice Kennedy said that central to the um, idea of liberty is the right to define your own concept of the universe. So it's all just the same kind of arch voluntarism, individualism that is indifferent to anything outside of the self. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet when you apply it to our contemporary politics, it gets really weird because you quickly realize that both sides want to do this. They just do it in different areas. Right. In different ways. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, You read at one point, you know, our, our chief problem is not, is imaginative, not technological. Um, and I think really what you, some of what you're doing in the book is trying to give us an imagination for a Christian world, right? Um, that <laughs> yeah. is enchanted, to use Taylor's term, you know, that is uh, where the transcendence actually breaks in, where, you know, families are not just turned in on themselves, but are for the good of their place and their good of their neighbors. Um, how do we begin to grow that sort of imagination, you know, for those maybe listeners who might see an inkling of that in their own lives or their churches or their neighborhoods or read your book and go, oh, like I kind of get it, but I'm also like so ensconced in this kind of revolutionary way of life. I don't know how to get out. So something that Wendell Berry has said when faced with that question is you do what you can with what you have where you are. So I can think of examples where I've experienced really profound Christian community that is going to be pretty remote for a lot of people. Like last summer, my daughter and I went out to a writer's weekend at the Bruderhof in upstate New York. And our Saturday night was dinner and dessert out on this patio overlooking a pond. Um, And then um, they had a few musicians in the group who got out their guitars and instruments and we just started singing various folk songs that the Bruderhof had been singing for a hundred years. And they had lyric sheets so that the rest of us could join in. Um, That's a really beautiful expression of what that can look like. And I think that's a very desirable in-game in some ways, or not in-game, but long-term goal. That's not going to be super attainable for most of us because we don't have the kind of thick community that the Bruderhof already do. Because there's a certain sense in which these things Mm -hmm. are processes and what you're able to do at one point is not the same as what you can do at an earlier or later point in this process of trying to cultivate strong community. Um, But I mean, like one of the things I remember, this has probably been 10 years ago, but I still remember it, was we had a small group dinner at our old church, um, at our small group leader's home. And what we had done is it was a Saturday in the fall. So, I mean, Nebraska is a very farming state. So we had actually gone to the farmer's market. 
yep. we had gotten um, what kind of seasonal produce we could get. And then we made a meal together and shared it together. Um, nothing too terribly complicated. If you have little kids, which we didn't at the time, but if you had little kids, you'd have to figure out childcare, but you can do that. Um, and you can include kids on those kind of things. Like my four-year-old helped me prep our Easter dinner this year. Um, so there's yeah. plenty of things you can do to include kids in these kind of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, just to be able to eat a slow meal together, not feel rushed to have had time. Like there's the conversation you have as an entire group while you're eating. And then there's the side conversation you had with somebody while you were chopping vegetables with them. So you kind of just organically right. are going to have different kind of conversations as the night goes. Um, something like that can be a really simple way to start. And then I think you can also consider, are there ways, if you have people in your neighborhood, in your church, are there ways of just trying to build in seeing each other more often during the week? Um, Anne Helen Peterson uses the phrase errand friends to describe the friends that mm -hmm. like you call them because you have to go to the store and you wondered if they'd want to come along and do that with you so you can talk and hang out while you're doing this errand or you have to go to the mechanic and sit in the waiting room for an hour would they want to come with you and you could get together and see each other that way um i think thinking in those directions can be a really simple practical way but i also think it is good mm -hmm. to have those visions of a community like the bruderhof or like I spent two summers at Libri, which is a residential Christian study center, more in the reformed tradition. Um, or for Catholics, if you have a monastery near your parish, like there are ways of trying to tap into these more developed, they've been at this for a long time kind of communities. And right. that gives you mm -hmm. a little bit bigger imagination for where these things can go, I think. I mean, even just... Being at Labrie and seeing what they've been able to do with the grounds that they've had on this property for 30 years, um, it just opens your eyes to things. So it's it's essential that we have these kind of short-term, simple things that we can do to get started. But I do think it's also good to find ways of seeing more developed, rooted Christian community Um because it's going to give you an imagination for where you can go that I think can be hard to develop otherwise. Mm -hmm. Are you worn out by hurry and hustle, and yet you don't know what it looks like to find a better way? Well, Jasmine Holmes called my book, A Spacious Life, Balm for a Weary Soul. Tish Harrison Warren called it a needed tonic, and Jen Pollock-Michelle talks about it as rescuing us from the siren call of self-help. Join these women as they have experienced both their own limits and seen how my book, A Spacious Life, helps all of us to embrace the goodness of our God-given limits. Find out more at aspacious.life. That's aspacious.life. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. 
So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman? Serve in the workplace? Or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. You know, and it, as you write a lot about the the nuclear family and the way in which, like, industrialization has, um, I, you know, great line about something like, you know, industrialization has liberated kind of the, the men from the home and contraception has, has meant to kind of liberate quote quote unquote you know women um as well in the same way that you know that we as we leave the home that we are not being formed into virtue um but rather that we are you know being formed into the values of the marketplace how might churches and families uh work together to begin to reclaim some of that virtue formation or spiritual formation amongst our people you know i'm just realizing the the extent to which so much of the the forms of our life dictate how we live our lives um and it feels like a very uh, a very uphill climb um at the in the best of seasons um for the church and for families to begin to push against that narrative the thing that my wife and I have been talking about a lot lately um is how this looks like it or what this looks like in education because we have young kids and she did an internship mm-hmm. at a Ambleside school in the Twin Cities last month. Um, Ambleside schools are a group of schools that are modeled after the educational philosophy of Charlotte Mason. She's a 19th century British educator. Yeah. Um, there's a story that Joey heard during the internship where um, somebody talked about a somebody who wanted to be a teacher came to Charlotte Mason's school and said, I've come to learn how to teach. And Mason looked at her and said, you've come to learn how to live. So the way Mason kind of summarized her philosophy of education Mm -hmm. is that education is an atmosphere, a discipline and a life. Um, And so it's an atmosphere The like the school feels a certain way, like at river Mm -hmm. tree where Joey did her internship. There's no screens anywhere. There's really nice wood bookshelves. The furniture is tasteful. There's attractive art on the wall. It's meant to be a beautiful place. Um, I mean, I've even seen this at our church mm-hmm. here in Lincoln. Our pastor's wife does a lot of woodworking, um, mostly working with stuff they find around their land. They have a few acres on the edge of town. And so she has these really cool tables that you can see the cross section of the wood and she's not painted over it or anything. She's just um, finished it. Um, And those are set up in the foyer where our bulletins sit on Sunday morning. Um, There should be a concern with beauty that I think is present in both the church and the home. Um, Mason also talks about it's, it's a discipline. Um, 
she said that the three reasons a student doesn't do what they're expected to in class is either weakness, ignorance, or rebellion. And she said rebellion is actually relatively rare. Usually it's weakness or ignorance. And weakness, we provide strength and support. And ignorance, we provide true knowledge and, and teaching. Um, so I think you can have those kind of practices. Um, Leah Sargent has a really good piece, I'm trying to remember, just about how we talk about men and women in the workplace and the way that that can kind of form us towards certain things, mm -hmm. um, even in very trivial kind of ways, can shape us in bad ways. Trivial practices, seemingly, can shape us in bad ways. Um, and so I think there are lots of chances for churches and homes to try and cultivate beauty in relatively simple ways. Um, we have an essay on Miro um, about, this woman talks about just always buying flowers when she's at Trader Joe's. So she has milk, eggs, bread, and flowers are kind of the four things she gets every time yeah. she goes. Um, and Edith has, Edith Schaefer has a wonderful book on this called Hidden Art. Um, regrettably, it was republished under Hidden Art of Housekeeping, which Edith despised the title but you can find it. It's a wonderful book on this kind of stuff. Um, we don't want to be legalists and like tell people, if you do X, God will love you more. That's obviously not true, but it is correct to say that there are certain things that like we do because of what we believe about God, what we believe about what God has done for us, about how he has made the world. Um, and it's not wrong to call people to those things. Um, and so I think it's it's okay to call people toward a different sort of life than one that is constantly reaching upward, trying to kind of climb this ladder of bourgeois achievement and respectability. Um, it, it's okay to point out the like failures of that and where that can lead you. Right. Um, right. Yeah. That we are less human because of. Right. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like those. Thanks. I was thinking about this. I was talking with a pastor friend about this last week, actually, because I said, you know, I, I've heard a number of sermons in my life dealing with sex and gender stuff, for example, where you get the impression that the pastor's kind of like, you know, we'd really love to be able to say X is okay, but darn it, that old Paul just won't let us. Um, right, right. And man, if it weren't for Paul, we would just really love to be able to say that doing Y is fine, but we can't, our hands are tied. So, and, and what yeah. that has the effect of doing is it, it communicates that you feel badly about what the Bible says about something, that mm -hmm. you don't really understand why it says that, and ultimately that you're not really clear on why that would be good news. Like, right. if scripture is God's revelation to us, um, then what's in scripture is good news for us because it's how we encounter our creator and are restored to him. Um, and yet I think we can have this really apologetic way of talking about some of these hard issues sometimes, which isn't to say you should be insensitive or offensive, but that we shouldn't be ashamed by right. scripture um it's good news and we should talk about it as if we believe it's good news um yeah i mean it would call us i think then to look to actually look distinct and you you reference um james hunter's kind of four ways that we can relate to a culture we can you know be relevant to or um 
I'm forgetting them all, but yeah, obviously he talks about, you know, the, the faithful presence within is the way forward. Um, of course, then he doesn't have a lot of practical stuff in his book to change the world at the end there. It's like, great, but now what do we do, James? But, um, you know, but it's a great, it is a great book, but I think, you know, you're charting for us some of, some of how we got here, but really trying to also give us an imaginative way forward. You know, you say one problem, one problem too, is that, um, you know, that we have basically that we have imagined the wrong sort of world. Um, and so what might it look like for Christians to begin to imagine the world that is actually based on God's goodness, on the, the beauty of the created order, on, you know, communities that flourish, not based on what one has, but how one gives. Uh, so I think there's a lot in there to, to mine. Um, and I hope it, even just our conversation today has allowed people to begin to imagine some of that and then to even think about, okay, I can just, I can have a dinner party, you know, and it doesn't need to be fancy, but I can invite people over and we can cook together and live life together as a really practical way. It's also something I learned during the pandemic. There's like, you can learn so many things. Like this is the like one redeeming factor yeah. value of YouTube in my mind. It's like, you can actually learn a lot of like, yeah. I've learned home repair and cooking and mixology from YouTube basically. So yeah, like you can watch like amazing chefs prepare meals and see exactly what they do. And you'll come across some techniques yeah. that you can't do, but that's fine. Like that's learn great. what you can and yeah, try. That's great. There's a lot of fun in it. Um, well, we could talk about these things forever, but I would love to hear your laundry routine. What does it look like in your household these days? I think it's similar to the routine last time I was on. The main difference probably being that there's at least one load every week that we have to rewash because it sat in the washer <laughs> right? and didn't get moved to the dryer in time. Um, but yeah, otherwise... Your children are a little bit older, though, so have they you know, started they, doing laundry yet? Um, Davy, our oldest, helps put her laundry away. That's good. And we've been trying to get our second oldest started on that as well. Um, the four-year-old and two-year-old, we kind of still do everything. Right. But, yes. Yeah. As one does. Yeah. Yes. But the nine and seven-year-old can help a little bit more. And actually, even the four and two-year-old enjoy helping um, either put clothes in the washer or move them from the washer to the dryer. Nice. So they do help with that. Yes. <laughs> yes. See? Good habits of the household. I love it. <laughs> Well, thank you, Jake. It's been such a pleasure to have you on and appreciate your good work, your good thinking, and your posture towards others. Thank you for having me on. This was fun. You're welcome. Friends, I would encourage you to grab a copy of Jake's book, What Are Christians For? He really skips through all of this scholarship from early Christianity through the Reformation all the way to the present day in ways that are really very readable and compelling. You'll want to grab a copy of What Are Christians For? You can also find the link to that book in the show notes, as well as the link to his first book, In Search of the Common Good. I always love to leave my listeners with one small step as we move forward and seek to apply big ideas to your actual everyday holy life. And so I would encourage you to simply make a meal with friends. 
Jake talked about the ways in which even his small group at church gathering together to cut vegetables. He spoke about his four-year-old even helping prep the Easter meal. And these times around the table and in the kitchen can really begin to create thick communities. It's a great first step. So grab a copy of his book and put a date on the calendar to create and eat and feast with friends. I hope that that is one small step towards bringing together all of these big things, but also helping you to live out of your ordinary life, a life of meaning and purpose and beauty. So remember friends, big things matter, but so does the laundry. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.